I want you to imagine uh, you are sitting in your seat and you are surrounded by maybe a group of friends, maybe some coworkers. Uh, maybe it's at dinner, maybe it's around the work table, and you hear someone say something that you don't agree with. In fact, not only don't you agree with it, but it is counter to everything that you know to be true in this world. And I don't know what the topic is. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's a religion. Maybe it's which direction the toilet paper roll should be inserted when you're replacing it. I don't know what that is, but when you hear something that's counter to what you know to be true, what is your reaction? Does your heart quicken? You feel angry. Do you go into defensive mode? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to smash my idea across this table. Do you jump into a state of confusion thinking, how on earth can these lovely people that I thought were wonderful be so wrong on this particular issue? Do you shut down and just stop talking? Do you say, I need to get out of this conversation as quickly as possible? Do you run away? Do you lean in and listen, try to hear them out? Or do you get offended? And you might say, well, Aaron, uh, it depends on what the topic is, right? How, how important is this to, to, uh, to me? And that dictates how I actually react to it. But I want to start with this idea, how do you react to ideas that are challenging to you? Things that challenge your preconceived notions. Things that you've either been taught since you were a child or that are so core to the way that you engage the world that you can't imagine maybe a different way of thinking about it. And sometimes those things that we hold can be good things. They can be lessons that we know about good and evil, lessons that we've learned throughout life. But if we're honest, sometimes those things that we hold on to can also be not so good things. Maybe wrong things that we either inadvertently realize or don't realize are not true. Unhealthy patterns that have resulted from wounds that we've received. And, and I'm certainly not saying that every idea that you hear or receive should be taken as truth. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But I think if we're honest, sometimes we find ourselves in this echo chamber of just hearing things that align with our own worldview. And sometimes, if we're honest, that can put us in a place where we're not able to shift or to grow or to learn. And if you correlate that idea to things of God. God could be wanting to teach us or showing us things that we may be closed off from. And that way of thinking can leave us stuck. This past Sunday was the Super Bowl. And I don't know how many of you watched it with me. It's the one game a year that my wife and I tune in with everybody else. We're mostly there for the snacks and the commercials as much as for the game. Uh, but there was one particular set of commercials this last uh, Sunday uh, that had quite a bit of press, quite a bit of buzz around it. I don't know if you saw them. Uh, they were the commercials about Jesus saying he gets us. Talking about Jesus as an immigrant and a refugee, as a radical. And I think I saw more press on those commercials prior to the Super Bowl when they you know, just went up for their 30 seconds or so. I feel like they flew right by. And at face value, I actually really, really like the ads. What was more interesting to me was the response on either side for those ads. There were those on one side who said they didn't go far, far enough, that they were just trying to make Jesus cool to a new generation, or there were many who poked and said, you know, they should have taken those millions of dollars and fed those who were hungry 
which is actually a pretty good point. Then there was those on the other side. And the fact that these ads were supported by people who, from their perspective, hold these intolerant positions, they weren't even close to a place of being able to listen. And the result is, I don't know if those ads could actually change the conversation. Maybe it did. There were millions of people who were watching. But I think sometimes many people have their minds already made up. And not only do we have a hard time listening to each other, but I think that we also live in a cancel culture. If I don't agree with you, if what you're saying is different than what I know to be true, if I think that what you're saying is wrong, then I am going to shut you down. Now, how do you get a message across in a culture like that? Now, we either find ourselves just talking to people who agree with us on all the issues, or we walk around on eggshells. And the last couple years, I feel like a lot of us have been walking around on a lot of eggshells. When it comes to putting your faith in Christ, when it comes to being a Christian, there are many who already have their minds made up about the issue. And it doesn't matter what you say, it's hard to break through that exterior. In fact, if you were to look at the statistics right now, there is a growing number of people who have either walked away from or are in process of walking away from faith, walking away from religion here in this country. Or there's a lot of statistics that point to those who used to attend maybe every Sunday a month are now attending occasionally, and those who used to attend occasionally are now barely attending at all. They're holding participation in church in participation in the family of God at arm's length. And there are probably a lot of reasons for this. You know, maybe if you find yourself in that category, perhaps you've been hurt by someone in the church, or you, you've been fed up with those who claim Christ and act so poorly. I think in our world right now, busyness and competing demands can play into how hard it is to engage with the family of God. But I just have to say, if that's you and you feel this pull away from church, that the remedy for that is to actually encounter Jesus, to experience the power of God. And if that's you, I, you know, that's, that's what I want for you, to learn and consider the words and teachings of Jesus. I don't think that that characteristic I just described of having a hard time listening to those who have a different view from you, I don't think that that's a new characteristic for people. In fact, today we're going to be looking at uh, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. And we'll see that those who heard the words that came out of Jesus' mouth, they were shocked. They were rocked by what he said. And I'm so excited today to be opening up God's word with you. We're going to be spending our time in Matthew chapter 5 and uh, we are making our way through the Against the Grain series. And if I haven't met you before, my name's Aaron. I'm the campus pastor in Alma. Good morning to those of you who are gathered here in Mount Pleasant. Good, also, good morning also to those who are online and those that are gathered in Alma. And then this is also the first Sunday that I get to say good morning uh, to all of you who are gathered at our St. John's campus. And I've loved hearing stories of you guys loving and leading and serving each other. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at uh, a, a next section in the series that we're in. And the series is looking at the life of Jesus. And it's looking at the life of Jesus and the way that he was coming to bring something new, a new way of engaging with God, a new way of living. A new way of looking at what it means to actually be part of the family of God. And many of the things that Jesus is saying, we'll see today, 
they're counter to the worldview, the understanding that his listeners would have had. Many of the things that Jesus said were radical. This portion of scripture we're looking at come from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you have a Bible like mine, Jesus' words are always in red, and this entire chunk of scripture is all in red. And scholars say this was likely not one single telling that he gave. This was an age before television, before TED Talks, and before YouTube. And so he would be sharing these things everywhere he went. Crowds would come around him as he traveled from city to city. His disciples would be hearing these things again and again and again. And those crowds kept coming because they were curious. They heard the buzz about Jesus. They wanted to experience the miracles. Some were actually maybe coming to receive a miracle. And they were also coming because they heard that what Jesus was talking about was so radical. It was challenging. Jesus would speak, and it would cause those who were listening to question their own beliefs, beliefs that were core to their identity, beliefs that were core to their understanding of the world or or what it meant to be a religious person. So I want you to picture it, that you're sitting there, you know, it's, it's hot. You're in the Middle East. There's a crowd that's forming. You called into work that morning. <coughs> Boss, I can't make it in today. There's a, a large crowd that's coming around, and you're just curious. You, there's a buzz around Jesus, and you wanted to see for yourself. Looking around you, you see many people who are Jewish like you. But there are also those who are Gentiles. Some are Romans. Some are religious. In fact, teachers of the law are gathering around to see what Jesus is saying. There are those who are sick and those who are looking for direction, those who are looking for a miracle in their life. And Jesus starts in and he says, Blessed are you who are poor. What a crazy thought. At this time, you've been taught your entire life that, you know, if you are good, if you are righteous, then you will be blessed financially. All the patriarchs throughout Israel's history were rich. Abraham was rich. Isaac was rich. David and Solomon were filthy rich. You've been taught that the poor must be out of favor with God. And and Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Now, this this is great news for the poor. It's a radical idea. Jesus continues and he says, you know, blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. Not those who are powerful. He says, blessed are the peacemakers because they can earn God's favor. It's not about the power brokers and those who sit in places of authority. God is saying the peacemakers are actually the ones that that God is concerned about. And then he says this, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The pure in heart. Jesus is talking about this internal thing. It's it's not an external thing. And so many of the things that the Jews came to understand about religious practices, they knew what it meant to be ceremonial, clean on the outside, not touching, separating yourself. But Jesus is pointing at these internal things, these heart issues. And you see example after example after example of Jesus establishing something new. He was setting out a new way of understanding what the kingdom of God was all about. And I have to guarantee, if you were sitting there listening, it was challenging. In fact, I can just imagine the stir that's starting to form there amongst the crowd as he would speak. 
mixed reactions with each statement, that some were you know, inevitably excited. This was good news for them. This was exciting for them. This is what they had been waiting to hear. Some were furious, were angry. This was so different than what they wanted that they wanted to cancel Jesus. I imagine for pretty much everybody, they were uncomfortable. And then Jesus says this phrase. He says, you've heard it said. And if you were Jewish, like, of course you've heard it said. Like, these things are a given. And that phrase, you've heard it said, was actually a common phrase for rabbis to use, for for teachers in the day. And those who were experts in the law would say, you've heard it said, and they would be referring back to what had been said by Moses, by the original guy who had brought them the law that had heard from God. These things were established. They were things that they knew to be true, things that they, without a question of a doubt, were core to their identity or understanding of what God wanted for them. And Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. I just imagine people sitting there trying to wrap their minds around Jesus and saying, like, who are you? Who, who are you to think that you, know, you can add on to what we already know or understand? You're reinterpreting things that we already know to be true. You know, Moses said that originally. Are you saying that you're bigger than Moses, that you're better than Moses? But Jesus has this, this new way of living, this new way of thinking that he's rolling out. And six times in Matthew chapter 5, he uses this phrase, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, do not murder But I say that if you hate your brother, you have broken this commandment already. You've been told, do not commit adultery. But but I say, even if you lust, if you have lust for another person, you commit adultery in your heart. It says, you've heard it said, men, you've been told that if you want to end your marriage, you can just write a certificate of divorce. But Jesus says, not so fast. He talks about keeping your word and turning the other cheek. And then he gets to verse 43. He says this, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For the Jews who would have been hearing these words, so much of their history, if you read throughout the Old Testament, So much of their story was them separating themselves from everybody else, isolating themselves. The story of Israel actually begins with them going into the promised land and and kicking out those who didn't have the same faith that they did, expelling those who worshipped other gods, of of hating those who weren't their neighbors, their brothers or sisters, and, and that even engaging with those who weren't part of the family was forbidden. So what Jesus is saying, it's radical. It's incredibly challenging. And I wonder on the list of things that Jesus would say that would be challenging for you, what would be on that list? Maybe it's on this short list that we're looking through here. Maybe it's on a longer list of things that that you've seen in God's word. And you may say, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you don't go there. As long as we don't talk about that. I'm just going to keep that off to the side. Like, I'm yours as long as we don't talk about my sexuality. Or, or, or God, as long as we don't look at how I spend my money or my time. Jesus, I'm all in as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. 
What's on the list that's keeping you from fully submitting to God, from fully surrendering to God? And, and if you're honest, you've been on the sidelines. You've been curious about faith. You've been curious about, you know, what we talk about here on Sundays, but you've not been able to commit. I want you to imagine yourself again sitting in that crowd, hearing those words from Jesus, you know, that gut reaction that's reacting to something that you don't agree with. And for most of those who were hearing those words, they knew the law. In fact, for the Jews, if you were Jewish, that you, uh, so much more of that list of laws was more than a list of do's and don'ts. Rather, the law was an identity of who they were. In fact, it was the law that set them apart as God's people. The law was referred to as the Torah. The first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The law detailed the story of creation and the, the designation of God's people. And it culminated in God giving man the law. In fact, God spoke it to Moses on a mountain. It, Moses was given the Ten Commandments and he came down. Maybe you picture that scene with Charlton Heston. And these made up the foundation of the law. And the law for the Jews was so much different than the way that we think about laws in our own country. In fact, the law was so much more. It was associated with how you ate. The law had something to say about who you connected with, who you had relationships with, how you lived. There were 613 commandments that they would have known. 248 of those were positive commandments. Things that you should do. Things to be lived out. Things to be done. 365 of them were do nots, uh, negative commandments. No, don't do those things. And here's the thing. The law was an everyday reality for the Jews. It was immersive. Many of them had learned it from childhood. They, they memorized it. They could recite it. The law also included the story of how God led his people out of captivity and out of Egypt. It outlined the terms of the covenant the promise that God had made with his people. The law set up how man would connect with God. And try as they may, they were unable to keep the law. They could not keep the law on their own. So God made a way for them to reconcile with him. To, when they broke the covenant, a way for them to come back in relationship with God. Because a payment for sin had to be made. And that payment involved sacrifice. The spilling of innocent blood, which whenever that happened would bring them back into this, this standing where they could be with God. And you see this pattern for the Jews. We read about it in the Bible of breaking the law, then making a sacrifice, of being made right and being brought back to, to, to God, then breaking the law and sacrificing again, repeated over and over and over. And what was the result of this? I believe the result of this is that they did not have intimacy with God. There was a separation that was there. And so God raised up prophets, people who could speak for God. And they shared about a new thing that God was going to do, a Messiah that would come and give them a new way for man to connect with God. And the Messiah was the future hope for the Jews. And so for those who were listening, if they were curious, if Jesus was that promised Messiah, the law was incredibly important. 
You know, it wasn't up for debate. In fact, they knew it. They could recite it and try as they may. They knew that they couldn't keep it. The law was a burden. It was shackles. I mean, they knew full well what separated them from God. So this crowd is around Jesus, and Jesus is teaching And what he is saying, every word out of his mouth, is challenging many of the very beliefs that they held. They already realized that they couldn't keep the law, but even in places where they thought they had the law figured out, like thinking, you know, I I do a pretty good job of not murdering people, right? Like I must be doing pretty good at keeping that commandment. But, But Jesus is saying, even if you hold hate in your heart, you have broken that law. You know, I've never cheated on my spouse before, but, but if you thought about another person, if you fantasize, you are guilty. You've sinned in your heart. You know, it almost appears like Jesus is like making the law that much more unattainable. He's, he's raising the bar. But I believe there are two new paradigms that Jesus wanted to establish. First, you know, I don't think his intention was simply to raise the bar a little bit higher. I don't think Jesus, you know, expected to share these things and, and his words to be so powerful, so convincing, that all of a sudden, those who were hearing them would have the ability within them to work harder and to achieve holiness on their own. But I do think that holiness was part of the goal. I think he makes that clear in his final statement in this section of Scripture in verse 48. He says this, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think this shows Jesus' ultimate intention. This is Jesus' goal for his people. This is his goal for you. Jesus is interested in perfection. You want to know what God's goal is for your life. He wants to perfect you. And this backs up who Jesus is. Jesus is God himself, God in the flesh. And and what do we know about God from from history, from prior to Jesus? The same God that they worshipped in the Old Testament is who is represented in Christ. And the word that we often use to describe God is this word, holy, set apart, When God set up his covenant with with his people, with Israel, he said that they should be the same, that they should be holy, they should should work. That was the purpose of the law. They should be set apart. But it was an unattainable goal because those men and women were human, just like you and me. So the sacrificial system was set up. Innocent animals, blood was shed to pay for sin, but it was never enough to atone. It was never enough to bring them back into relationship with God. I think often when we think about Jesus, we think about a message of grace and forgiveness. We think about the removal of the punishment for sin, and those are incredible and wonderful, true things about Jesus. But we also see Jesus maintaining the standard. Jesus is maintaining the standard of holiness. He says, you want to follow me? This is the standard perfection. But I know I don't, st- I don't hold up to that standard. 
You know, I, I read through that list, and I, and I think, you know, even in places where I'm like, I do a pretty good job of, of not murdering, I'm good. Jesus says, you're not. And in fact, if you think that you are good just by simply following the law, you have missed the purpose of the law. The law existed to demonstrate the holiness of God and the impossibility for us to meet that standard. So this is the first paradigm that Jesus is getting across. Following the rules will never be good enough. And I think if we're honest, many of us live our life trying to follow Jesus, thinking that it's just about me trying to follow the rules. Jesus' first idea is it's a realization that religion onto itself of trying to keep the law, follow the rules, will never be enough to get you to heaven. Try as you may. Which presents a bit of a problem for us. Because it's the same problem that the Jews who were listening to Jesus had. We find ourselves in the same situation. Jesus presents this problem in such a powerful way. When I was in elementary school, my family moved up to Michigan, and coming out of the city of Chicago, we had a little bit of property, and my mom wanted to get back to her, her roots, uh, and she, she started planting a garden, and her little garden took over most of the backyard as it started to grow, and vicariously, all of us kids also became interested in gardening. And I don't know if you garden, but it is... You know, it's an incredible thing to see these little seeds that are planted grow into these beautiful plants. Remember, there was one year where we discovered the joys of miracle Grow, And we'd water our garden with the miracle Grow, and we had these mutant zucchinis that would come out of the garden. Uh, and, and, you know, it was, it was wonderful. And I remember there was one spring where, you know, I took it on myself. I was going to plant some pumpkins. And it was before it was warm enough outside, so I got some dirt I put it in a pot, I planted my pumpkins, and I watered it. I cared for it. In the morning, I would come down, I would check on my little pumpkins, and, and sure enough, little sprouts would start to come up through the dirt, and I got excited, and I cared for them. I nurtured them, make sure they were in the window to get enough sunlight. Uh, but some time went on, and I realized my little pumpkin sprouts did not resemble pumpkins that, that were on the package that I had planted. And I had taken dirt from the yard and put it into the pot to grow these. And so I had the best cared for weeds you can imagine. And they were growing up, and I'm sure that they were loved and, and cared for. Uh, but, you know, they had been planted by mistake, these things that were growing. What I had hoped to plant didn't end up happening. I think there's a lesson here. Jesus is pointing out that some of these sins that you know, we'd likely agree our bigger issues, murder, hate, adultery. They are the fruit of deeper root causes. And Jesus is saying he's more concerned about the root of our sin problem than he is about the fruit. Just by way of example, most of us, when we're starting out in a new relationship, and you're still writing love notes, and it's all lovey-dovey, we don't generally expect to end up cheating on our partner. But the seeds of lust can grow. Looking at pictures on Instagram, or having innocent conversations, and the seeds of lustful intent 
is a sin that begins in the heart. And so it's not just a matter of avoiding big sins. Jesus is saying, I am more concerned about your heart. What is your heart's desire? That following me is so much more than just a changing of behavior. We see God's desires for us to have a heart that desires him more than anything else. We need a change of heart. This is a powerful lesson because to overcome sin issues in our lives, it often requires us to look at the deeper root causes. Over my years in ministry, I've seen men and women who are stuck in patterns of sin, trying to change their bad habits and finding that they just cannot do it on their own. That's actually a huge part of a ministry we have here called Celebrate Recovery, which works through a 12-step program to get to the root of our hurts, our bad habits, and the hang-ups in our lives, the, the trauma that often contributes to us finding ourselves in a situation where we're powerless to overcome sin on our own. You will never be good enough on your own to be made right with God. And Jesus is communicating that perfection It is unattainable on your own. You can't do it. And if you thought you were doing a pretty good job puffing yourself up, Jesus is laying you out here. You know, in all my years, I am yet to meet a perfect person. I've met a few people who thought they were pretty close. You know, as a church, we often say that we are filled with imperfect people. And so if you can't attain what Jesus is saying is the goal, if we can't attain perfection, do we throw up our hands and give up? Saying like, you know, I can't do it on my own. If if I can't keep the law, should I just walk away from it, throw it out? Was the law just a failed experiment? Do we just, you know, do whatever we want? Is that what Jesus is saying? Right before this, Jesus says, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to complete it. Jesus came to solve the problem that we find ourselves in. You know, if the old covenant was an assignment, Jesus says, I am here to complete it. Thinking, rationalizing the Old Testament, if the Old Testament was a math problem, Jesus is saying, I am here to solve it. And here's the solution. Here's the the second paradigm. It is impossible for you to live up to God's standard without God at work in you. What you can't do on your own, God says, I can do it through you. Jesus' ministry on earth as the promised Messiah would ultimately lead him to be the ultimate sacrifice for sin for us. And he is ultimately what allows us to live up to God's standard of perfection. He came to fulfill the old covenant, the terms of the law, and to introduce a new one. One pastor put it this way. He says, the old covenant was a divinely created cocoon from which God's love was revealed to the world. That was the purpose of God's relationship with Israel. The the new covenant, the new deal that Jesus came to usher in, it was the full expression of love now, not just for Israel, but for the entire world. And it began with this changing of hearts, a new way of engaging God. Hebrews 10 says this, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made 
holy. Jesus' death once and for all has made a way for us to be called holy, both because of what Jesus did for us, but also in this process of him perfecting us. You and I can be made perfect, but not by our works, by his work. Jesus' sacrifice once and for all, it makes a way for us to be in relationship with God, to know him, to experience him, to have communion with him. You know, when you take a first step and you put your faith in Christ, you surrender your life, God takes up residence inside you. This is the new covenant. This was the new deal that Jesus brought. And if you put your faith in Christ, it is Christ in you that is your only hope of beginning to look and to think and to act more like Jesus. And we call that process discipleship. The activity of following Jesus that as a result of, of me continually submitting my life to him, that I begin to look and to think and to act more like Jesus, learning what it means to listen to God and put it into practice, to pursue holiness. My heart begins to change as I give my life over to him. And while perfection is not completely possible for us this side of heaven, the Holy Spirit begins this work in our lives of perfecting us. And that's ultimately the work of the church there was one word that we would use to sum up this season that we're in as a church, elevate. It would be this word, discipleship. And over these next few years, we're looking for more ways to move the needle when it comes to lived out obedience to Christ, of helping people discover the power of what it means to have God at work in your life because that is what he wants for you. And so what's the point? Like we look at the life of Jesus and we see that it's immeasurably significant. It's, it's hard to describe. A, a new era was beginning. Jesus fulfilled everything that the Old Testament had put into place. And now he sets you and me free from trying to be good enough on our own. Instead, he says, I'm going to make a way for God at work inside of you to change your heart to change your, your title from imperfect to perfect because of what Jesus did and to, to do the work of perfecting us. I had the joy of leading the youth ministry here at Community Church for many years. And probably one of my greatest joys is seeing young men and women who were part of that program at one moment or, or one time growing up and graduating, starting families, and still staying connected to church still leading and serving and, and tasting what God wants to do in their life. And I would say the opposite is also true. There's, there's moments where I see students who had this flash of something, an excitement for God, and years later seeing that taken away. In fact, not too long ago, I bumped into a former student, and we didn't dig into reasons, but they were just kind of expressing, oh, yeah, I kind of fell out of the habit of, you know, not really in church anymore, not really, really doing anything. And we didn't get into the reasons why, but I have to believe that they didn't experience the power of God in their life. God is saying, I want to be available to you. I want you to know me in a way that, that shapes and molds who you are. You don't have to be stuck in these same religious cycles that we find ourselves of trying to be good enough on your own. Instead, lean into what it is that Jesus wants to teach you. So going back to our initial thought this morning, 
What is on that list for you that you have held at arm's length, this idea of saying, God, we, you know, I want to follow you, I want to know you, but don't go there. Don't talk about that thing. Maybe it's the relationship that you have with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Maybe it's the words that bubble up inside of you when, when you're angry. Maybe it's how you spend your money or your time. I don't know what that is, but I have to believe that the Spirit of God has a desire to perfect you into the image of His Son, Jesus. The Spirit has an amazing way of convicting us of sin. Because the truth is that we don't need more religion. What we need is a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying that's available to you. That's the hope that we have as Christians. And that hope is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that we would be a people who are sold out for you. God, that there would be stories of the ways that you're working here in this community, in this family. And God, that would draw people to you. Father, we pray that we would be a people who are defined by, by what Jesus did on the cross for us, God, that we'd be defined as moving in this direction of discovering what God wants for us. And God, I pray for everyone right now who maybe feels a tug on their heart of saying, you know what, I have kept this separate from what God wants for me. Holy Spirit, would you do the work of perfecting us? God, would you surround us with brothers and sisters who can encourage us, push us, spur us onward? Father, we just say that we are grateful. Grateful to be in your care, grateful to be called yours. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Next week, we are continuing the series and looking at uh, a different understanding of how we actually connect with God. So hope to see you next Sunday. Have a great week.